How's it going, everybody? Dan Fagella here at Tech Emergence, where we interview researchers, investors, and entrepreneurs in the domain of emerging technology. Today, I'm lucky enough to have Dan Batcher on the line with me. He is a senior research and development engineer at Brown's BrainGate Group, awful long title there, and also founder of the nonprofit, the Speak Your Mind Foundation. And he's interested in the domain of brain machine interface and assistant technologies. Dan, how are you today? Doing well. How about yourself? Very good. I'm glad to be able to be in touch. I know we got in touch through Jessica, who obviously also works there. Um, at BrainGate. I wanted to get, and I also do this, a little bit of background on on how you got initially involved in BrainGate. I know you're more on kind of the system uh, engineering kind of side of things and sort of how you found your fit into that space in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, you know, back when I was in school, I was doing biomedical engineering and uh, really became interested. I actually had a wide range of interests, frankly, but um, at one point it came down to I really, I really got into electrical engineering um, but also had this interest in neuroscience as well. And although those are kind of two different fields, the, the interesting thing for me, before I really knew about brain-machine interfaces, um, these two different disciplines of interest, I kind of blended into my undergraduate degree. Um, and then when I went over to go off to graduate school, I really decided that applying technology to the area of neuroscience was just something that fascinated me. It kind of fulfilled multiple interests of mine. Um, and so as I went through my graduate work, doing brain-machine interface research in non-human primates. Um, so, you know, basically having monkeys playing video games with their brains to understand how the brain works, but also to work towards building, you know, viable assistive technologies using brain-machine interfaces. So that was kind of a goal early on in my career. Um, but while I was a graduate student, uh, I think it was one of my advisors actually just pointed out, hey, you know, the BrainGate group is looking to hire a couple people. And so I immediately jumped to that opportunity because for me, Although I'm really interested in the basic neuroscience and just love the pure technology aspect of it, um, thinking about how this translates to improve the quality of life for people in the real world has always been kind of the underlying motivation for me. Real deal. So when I saw this opportunity to come to the BrainGate group who kind of has that, that dual faceted approach of, well, let's, let's do some basic fundamental science with this sensor that we've developed and we can, we can talk more about the technology, I guess, soon. Um, but to have that, that dual-pronged approach of the science and the applied engineering for me just was a perfect fit. Um, and so I, I found my way to Brown and for the last four years or so I've really been one of the core group of engineers working on taking this technology and pushing it um, you know, towards the practical end of the spectrum in some ways, but also making sure that we're really set up to do, to do good science. So Yeah, cool. Um, and obviously, again, there's so much involved in BrainGate's uh, work there from the, the mm -hmm. trials themselves and you know, the, the videos that people might see on the front end on the website to sure. the, all the software, all the hardware, all the procedures and processes that must go, go into everything that gets rolled out, even a smidge into those actual applications where you're you know, plugging in, so to speak. Um, so yeah. that's cool stuff. Uh, and and uh, I, I know today... Um, you know, one of the reasons you started your, your foundation, which we'll get to in a second here, was sort of the, in, in, to some extent, inaccessibility of some of the technologies on the market in, in an assistive, assistive context. Obviously, BrainGate's work, mm -hmm. um, for anybody who's tuned in and doesn't know, pop them on Google, some great YouTube videos, very, great stuff on the website. Um, it, a lot of the assistive technologies for folks who are paralyzed are pretty prohibitively expensive. Clearly, BrainGate is still experimental, still in its trials. Um, the sure. other technologies out there um, uh, are, again, a little bit pricier, but give, give us maybe a brief outline as to what else there is out there. I think 
you know, some people are familiar with BrainGate's work with folks who, who are uh, paralyzed, um, but they might not know of the other uh, uh, potential answers to that particular problem, what other technologies are sure. out there to help folks. So maybe give us a little outline of that, and then we'll get into your stuff. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. So I think if, if we look at the, the patient population, the individuals that, that we're really trying to help with assistive technology in general, right? So people with neurological conditions such as ALS, spinal cord injury, um, traumatic brain injury, um, you know, people who are unable to speak, unable to move, um, you know, there are technologies that are available to enable them to communicate, to control their environment. Um, and and the, the general strategy there is, well, leverage whatever abilities that that individual still does have. So if you're someone who's paralyzed from the neck down, but you can still move your head, there are devices that can track head movements. You can put a little marker, like a reflective marker on your glasses or on your forehead and use a camera that could track head movements to control a computer cursor. Um, for people that can still control their breathing, there are sit-puff machines, so it's like literally a little straw. And when you pull in or blow out air, that can trigger a switch that can control something on a computer. Um, and then for people who, especially in the case of late-stage ALS, for example, which is a, a neurodegenerative disease that just kind of very slowly takes away your ability to move, um, eye movements are the last thing to go. And so there are eye gaze tracking technologies that can let you control, say, a computer cursor just using your eye movements. So these technologies exist. They've actually been around for a while. Um, but it's kind of a, if you just kind of look at the business context of it, um, it's a relatively small market, right? And so for companies to make money in the space, unfortunately, the price point has to be, has to be pretty high. Yeah. And, you know, the... The, the standard solution to that problem is, you know, you make it a medical device and get it reimbursed through, through health insurance. Um, and, and that works for some people, um, you know, for, for people that have good insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, depending on what state they live in, what resources are available to them. Um, you know, some of the devices that, are, that people get, they, they do work and they, they solve a problem. Um, but, you know, as, as we already kind of mentioned earlier, there, there still is this huge gap between the technology creator and the healthcare provider. And that's where I think, and you know, I'm sure we'll get to it in a second, but I think that's where there's a big opportunity to improve these systems, lower the cost, improve the functionality, and really um, improve the ability to customize the solutions to truly meet an individual's needs. Yeah, what are what are some of the the just baseline solutions now? I know you'd mentioned eye tracking yeah. uh, software. Um, you know the the um, technology uh, that leverages breathing or or the the reflective dot. Um, mm -hmm. What do some of these look like, and how do they how do they function? Eye, eye tracking, for example. I mean, is yeah. are the are the traditional answers the ten thousand dollar piece? Is it you know a massive helmet? Is it a camera setup? How how are they? So we're working now. Yeah, so there, so like eye trackers, for example, there are some wearable eye tracking systems where it's a pair of glasses with a small camera mounted, like really close to the eye. Um, that has the advantage of the accuracy can be greater because the camera is really close. Yes. However, it involves wearing something constantly, and that's prohibitive for some people. Um, there are other versions where you know, like the camera we're using right now on Skype to talk to each other, the camera would be mounted there. Um, but it would be a custom-built camera with infrared sensors and infrared illumination, which, um, just not to get into the math, but it makes it easier to isolate the pupil and, and track it. Um, so that's, that's a, again, it's a technique that's been used for a long time, actually. Um, and I guess one of the exciting things is there are companies now getting into the space developing lower-cost eye trackers 
and they're actually really motivated to get it into like gaming. Oh yeah, and other yeah. Well, where's commercial the applications, markets, right? Where, where are the bigger markets? You know, that's the market. Now, the exciting thing for us is, and you know, we can take that hopefully relatively low cost commercial solution and use it. But up until, I mean, really the last couple of years, um, yeah, it's been systems that are ten thousand dollars plus. Yeah. That really have only primarily been used in scientific research where they're wanting to study eye movements or actually the other market that has existed for a while is um, companies that do market research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't surprise so, me either. Yeah. you know, when you walk into a grocery store, you know, a comp that grocery store would love to know what products you look at, how often you look at them, or if you're designing advertisements or an ad agency, you'd love to know what people fixate on. Yep. So they've been developing these eye tracking systems for that application for a long time. Um, so really there's, you know, it's not a huge leap to take that base technology and then adapt it to help someone with a disability. Yeah. So, so there are a few nice kind of emerging trends in, in what we'll call, you know, hands-free computing or, or whatever you want to call yep. it, okay, cool. um, that, that, that we're going to be able to leverage to, to do what we want to do with it. And, and speaking to that leveraging, I know a lot of the, uh, startup founders that I've I've spoken with in robotics and some other domains have have talked about how the developments in bigger markets have just brought down the cost of uh, certain technologies, increase the functionality, certain technologies just exponentially. Um, fo mm -hmm. Some folks at a uh, RoboCup uh, just really tout the uh, the. Connect. I don't know who makes that, the yep. Xbox or the Wii or whatever. Yeah, they Microsoft. Tap the ever-loving heck out of it, as well as uh, smartphones. You know, uh, iPhones and, and uh, Samsung and these other technologies. Simply because you know the the cameras, the sensors, the circuitry, um, mm -hmm. what it permits and allows. If if they can just you know either model it or literally use it, just rip it out and use it. Um, is so much vaster than what they could have done before without that bigger market. And obviously, everybody and their mom needs a cell phone. Not everybody and their mom needs a robot that's not even nearly close to developed that can get a beer from the fridge and open it for you and bring it to you. Like, not everybody needs that. So right, you can't, right. you know, we're not printing a million of those bad boys uh, right yep. now. So they're just taking what's, what's popular and useful. I think the transition to gaming for eye tracking would be pretty darn fascinating um, mm -hmm. How are you guys taking some of these technologies that are now more developed, more accessible, and bringing them to the cause and to the application of these assistive technologies now? Right. Yeah, and, and I guess just to, to give you a brief story to give you context for that. So, so while I was at BrainGate, and, or a few years ago when I first got started, you know, I was working with the patients in our clinical trial. And um, you know, although, like we said, the, the technology we're developing hopefully will be a viable solution one day, um, you know, came to the realization that the technology that they were typically using in their daily lives just wasn't getting the job done, right? So as an engineer and someone who loves to tinker and, and hack things, I just kind of started building one-off solutions for the participants in the clinical trial. And it started with using a webcam to do head tracking. Um, it, then, it then moves to creating a, a custom keyboard interface, so an on-screen keyboard you can imagine, I mean, like, look at your QWERTY keyboard that you typically, you know, on your computer or your smartphone. Imagine just using one finger or using a mouse to type on it. It's a pretty inefficient layout, hmm. right? So we started thinking about, and it was, it was kind of dual purpose. It was for the BrainGate trial because we had people controlling computer cursors with their brains. Hmm. Um, but we also, for, for Kathy, who you saw in many of those videos, um, it was also to develop a keyboard that she could use with a head tracker. 
um, outside of the trial. And we came up with this circle, circular radio keyboard interface that ended up working really well, that she could type more efficiently on and she thought was easier to use. Um, and that was, for me, that was actually my first experience of really paying attention to the individual's abilities and the individual's needs and then creating a solution that catered to that, to, to her, you know, what she needed. Um, and and that, so that was successful. It was a prototype and it's, she's still testing it and using it now. Um, we then had another participant in the trial who, um, he, he was a gentleman who had suffered a brainstem stroke and his primary means of communication was um, just to raise an eyebrow. So someone would read the alphabet to him and when I got on the letter he wanted, he'd raise his eyebrow. So this slow and arduous process of communicating um, was totally dependent on someone else being there dictating the alphabet to him. Ouch. And, and again, like this, this is not how it has to be, right? So, so this was the kind of my second, second attempt, which was I took a green sticker, put it on his eyebrow, used a standard webcam that would track. When he lifted his eyebrow, it would, it would pick that up as, as if he'd like pushed a button, a switch. We then created a really simple piece of software that just scrolled through the alphabet, so it didn't require someone else being there. <clears throat> and sure enough, he was typing out words and phrases and sending emails with it. We built a little email client into it. Whoa. So, so th these kind of like one-off hacked hack solutions, um, we, we realized there was something there to this, right? Which yeah. was like, take something off the shelf, build a custom solution, and really help someone. And so that's, we, we then took that and scaled that into what is now the Speaker Mind Foundation. And, and, and this, is, this is basically it. It's take an engineer who understands how to write software and leverage, you know, a webcam or object tracking, whatever it might be, and then create a custom piece of software for a specific client, though. And that's really, that's really the key is, is this ultra-personalized approach yeah. to technology creation. Yeah. So that, for me, that's how this kind of all evolved out of the BrainGate Lab into the Speaker Mind Foundation, which is just um, building one-off hack solutions that... Frankly, just kind of worked, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, and uh, it take, takes me down a lot of different thought tracks at one time. Um, at Speak Your Mind now, are are you primarily working with tailored and individual things? Are you aiming to come up with individual prototypes for specific um, problems, concerns, considerations that you can then modulate and adjust per person to sort of up your efficiency a bit? What's yep. the sort of approach and, and rollout that you guys are taking now? Yeah, so the, the, the objective right now, because we're still early stage, is we literally build, we take every single client as a unique project. Yeah. And we, and we build from scratch if we have to. Now, what's already happened, even though we've only done about 10 or so clients, and we have another 10 or so we're, we're starting to work with, um, is, we, we, again, it's kind of our, our initial assessment of them is what are their abilities and what are their needs. Yep. And if, if someone can move their eyes and they want to be able to send emails and use Facebook, um, then we, we look at what we have on, off the shelf already, right? So, you know, we already built a low-cost eye-tracking solution for someone else. So let's take that and adapt it to meet this individual's needs. Um, you know, we already have an on-screen keyboard, for example. Let's now get that to plug into Facebook. So it's really, it's really taking a truly bottom-up approach. Yeah. Um, but but to your point, the objective is to build, like what I like to say, is a portfolio of solutions. Yeah, 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 yeah. That we can then mix and match off the shelf and package and deliver. That's cool. Okay, okay. So that's where you're moving to. Of course, you have to right. iterate your butt off 
to figure out those general best practices. Oh, absolutely. And, and, I, sh and I should say that once we build something for a client, that doesn't mean we're done. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. And, and, and not, only, not only do we iterate to improve and refine the system we've developed, but a lot of our clients, their needs change over time. So someone someone who suffered a stroke, they may get better over time. So although maybe they're using an eye tracker to start, maybe they start to develop regain head movements uh, or the ability to use their hand again. Okay. Um, so we would actually change the technology they'd use. On the on the flip side of that, someone with ALS or it's a progressive disorder, they may start with a head tracking system, but then they lose that ability. So we then would move to an eye tracking system. So so really for us, it's. Um, we're we're a technology resource, but we're also our long term goal is to is to be there so that as needs change, we can swap out that technology to ensure that we're delivering the solution that best meets their needs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, and and it seems like again that that has to be, and I think that that is you know not the malicious side effect, but just the natural side effect of top down uh, approach from a large medical company. It's difficult to do that, right? Difficult to uh, just get into hardcore tinker mode, specifically now when the technologies are cheap enough for you to have the raw materials to tinker with. You no longer have to, right. you know, uh, get your super fancy like this camera can track eyeballs. Ooh, you know, it's, it's not it's not like that anymore. Um, yeah. So because the materials are there to be able to go Lego style and just plug and play stuff um, seems like the best way to come to better solutions than. You know, rolling out this technology and five years later, roll it, it's of course not the ideal. And it's yep. cool that you guys are going to come up with uh, sort of a suite of, of solutions there. It's, it seems as though um, that's a logical approach. Um, in terms of next steps, obviously for you guys, the next step is, of course, to have some kinds of templates, which are still iterative, but, but which mm -hmm. you can uh, increase your efficiency, you know, if, if it's if they have the functionality of an eyebrow, of just their eye movements, of this, of that, how to be able to account for all those things and find those best practices. Where do you, where do you see the next sort of generation of um, these assistive technologies sort of making their biggest mark? Is it with particular diseases? Is it is it in a particular location where these technologies are more available? Where, yeah, where yeah. do you see this starting to? Because right now there's still still are people you could probably attest to it spending ten thousand bucks on technology um, yeah. that don't have to. It's a, it's a good question because one of the things that we do that is actually I think somewhat unique is that. Um, we don't really, frankly, don't care what the origin of the disability is. So whether you have cerebral palsy or ALS or a spinal cord injury, it's, it's really all about the abilities and needs. And, and in a way, it's, um, it's somewhat unique we're doing that because if we develop a piece of technology for someone with a spinal cord injury who is moving their head... Um, to control a computer, there's no reason that can't help someone who suffered a stroke. Yeah, yeah, unless it right? interacts with that particular problem. If, if we were just talking about the functional, you're talking about the output of the person. It just that's depends right. on, that's what they're interacting with. So if you can calibrate right. it to that, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, understand. That's right. But but from a broader context, I think one of the things that we might be doing, and you know, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't, we shouldn't take credit for this. There are a lot of people that have been hacking solutions for people with disabilities, right? Certainly. And I think what, what happens typically is, you know, it's someone who's a software developer whose brother is diagnosed with ALS and they really understand their brother's needs and they build something really, really cool that that's works really idea. well. Yeah, that's great. Right? But they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have or even the desire to get this <laughs> thing out there to the world. So one of the things that I think hopefully we can do and kind of back to your question of like where this where this all goes at some point is 
I would love for, and whether it's the Speak Your Mind Foundation or not, I would love to see a just vast and widely distributed network of hackers and makers who are somehow connected to people with disabilities to build these custom solutions. And we've thought of different ways of, of building out that network. I mean, one possible way is, so right now we've, we've had a lot of help from students at Brown University, um, students at the Rhode Island School of Design, which is really cool. I think we, we could talk about this maybe in, in a minute, but yeah, design yeah. is such a critically important facet of what we do. Um, and it's really where some of the current technologies just fall flat on their faces. You know, these things are, um, I'd say, borderline insulting when it comes to Ooh. the aesthetics oh. of it. You, um, you know, something that was, it looks like it was developed for, for a, a five-year-old and it's, you know, a grown man who's trying to use the piece of technology or, you know, grown man or woman. Um, huh. so, so really blending off-the-shelf hardware, design, and, and engineering resources, frankly, from, from local universities. So you can envision a, a future where any university in the United States or around the world where there are smart and motivated engineering students design students, and maybe even medical students, um, they reach out to their local communities to help people in need to build custom solutions. And what Speak Your Mind could do is offer up the template on how to do that, right? Partner, partner with um, the local speech and language pathologists and occupational therapists, people that understand patient needs, um, and, and we give them essentially the, the template, right? Here's how to do it. Here's our huge open source portfolio of technology that we have that you can take and leverage to, to customize and deliver to that individual. Um, and, and for me, I mean, I think, I think that's a scalable model and it's one that yeah. could really allow us to maximize the impact of, of what we're trying to achieve, right? So Big time. Uh, and, I, and I think the good news is, too, now I haven't done my homework too much in this department, but uh, you, there's, there's likely to be dozens of industries or domains that have done something similar started with no real coherent community of interdisciplinary people with a common pa a, a cause and passion that they were you know wanted to make a make a difference with um, that then was somehow cultivated developed open source libraries were were torn open and, and things were expanded you know ro robotics yeah. is doing that Robocup mm -hmm. um, has has people in Cuba building stuff you know as complicated as people in Germany um, yeah. because it's all there, you know what I mean? It's all there. Um, so I think that that's, that's cool. And you guys have some other great groups to model in other industries. So I think that, that would be a cool way to proliferate this stuff. Yeah. Um, speaking to the future a, a little bit more here, um, I happen to not even, never mind brain machine interface, which would be a, a, a completely different conversation, I think. But if we're just talking about, um, you were, you said hands-free computing, pretty cool way to put it actually. Um, yeah. So hands-free computing, I, I think, I have an inkling that as soon as hands-free computing gets to the level that you're speaking to where literally, I mean, you know, there are it's, it's cheap, it's roll-outable, there's folks who are, who are paralyzed of all kinds of conditions who can do vastly more than they ever could before and interact with people in their world. I have an inkling even before that gets to a uh, super proliferated extent that these technologies will be used in, in non-ameliorative contexts um, right. for efficiency, for effectiveness. For example, I can't imagine, like actually literally can't uh, imagine, that in 10 years, uh, quants with eight screens up are not going to have something other than a bleeping mouse to click on. 
I of just course. Think, I mean, it, it's just silliness. So I think that the applications elsewhere are vast, just tremendously vast, um, mind-blowingly vast. And, and I think that it's going to be a, that's going to be a gap bridger way before, uh, maybe not way before, but a good amount before any kind of uh, applications of brain-machine interface in that particular context, of course. I think that there's going to be a lot of rollout in non-ameliorative context, too. Um, do you see the same thing? And if so, where do you maybe see that making its initial marks and steps? Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, clearly, a mouse and a keyboard, even today, it seems like a pretty antiquated way of interacting with, with sure technology, yeah. right? And we've already seen it. I mean, touchscreen interfaces, um, you know, voice voice control. I mean, that that's certainly come a long way. It's kind of gone through cycles, I think. Um, you know, people use Dragon actually speaking to dictate entire papers, memos, whatever. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. Um, that technology has come a long way, but it's still, I mean, you know, Siri on your iPhone, I feel like it's still not mainstream because mm. one of the things, in order to really penetrate the commercial market, there's, <laughs> there's a pretty high threshold for how well it has to work. And if, and if things kind of aren't reliable enough, um, then people quickly revert back to whatever oh, they're familiar yeah. with, right? Yep. So speech is one. I mean, I don't, how often do you use you know, Siri on your iPhone, very rare, maybe when you're driving or yep. whatever. So I think, although a lot of these technologies, there are cool demos, there are cool, like, proof of, proof of concepts, um, but yeah, it, it's inevitable people, they'll, they'll be refined to the point where they're ubiquitous, they're easy to, to calibrate and integrate into your lifestyle, and I think, you know, you look at Google Glass, um, you look at the, the Leap Motion, which, which allows you to do... Um, Hands-free interaction, just just with your hands and fingers. You should look that one up if you haven't what, seen how it. How is it spelled? It's just leap, leap motion. Leap motion, cool. Yeah, um, and yeah, you, you mentioned the Connect already. I mean, you can play these amazingly interactive video games just with your body, right? You don't have to hold sensors. It just yeah. it has really intelligent models of yeah. your own skeleton and yep. can can let you use your hands, arms, legs, whatever to interact. So I think. Um, to, to make its way into the kind of average day, average consumer's experience, um, I mean, it's going to happen. And I'll be honest, I think the next, the next three to five years is really going to be about um, wearable computing. And, and I think, uh, what's the general term they use? Natural human computer interfaces or hmm. something like that. I think there's a phrase, I said hands-free interaction, but yep. um, just, you know, the non-mouse non and standard keyboard methods of interacting yeah, yeah. certainly will be there. And I think, again, what, what excites me, and like, like you're alluding to, is um, that will then hopefully make it that much easier for us to hack those solutions to help people in need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Although so, I have, I have an yeah. inkling a lot of these ameliorative applications are going to be the initial research, like your work, for example. Um, sure. well, I, I see, at least at present, at least at present, because it's it's a little far out for the mainstream context, but at least at present, I see ameliorative applications as actually sort of leading the way to the non-ameliorative applications, um, yep. just like there's very clearly going to be exoskeletons, or, or, and I think we've already seen this, exoskeleton yeah. work done in an ameliorative context that then has and or is on the cuspish of being rolled into non-ameliorative context. I think yep. that helping people is a red, it's a red flag. Like, you know, uh, interacting better with my four screens is not a red flag. There's no, <laughs> there's no red flag waving, right? It's just like, right. oh yeah, that, that might be nifty maybe kind of, but I yeah. have no reference of it. 
But fixing a problem is, I have a perfect reference of that, and this person doesn't have that. My goodness, let's go fix that thing. So I think ameliorative context, in my mind, actually might sort of lead the way, at least initially. Do you see that potentially happening as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the thing that happens, too, is the government or the military, they become interested in these technologies early yeah. on also because they see the applications beyond it. So DARPA, for example, you know, they, they fund brain-machine interface research. Oh. Um, because they see the value in not only helping veterans who come back from war with, with these injuries, but you know they, they, they see the potential application for integrating you know what, whatever futuristic applications you want to think of it, but even some of the practical ones like um, you know soldiers communicating non-verbally with each other in the battlefields through, through a, a brain-computer interface. I mean, these are things that they know are way, way, way far off, but um, you know, they have the resources and, and are willing to take those risks to fund projects yeah. because, I mean, frankly, that's what, that's, the thing about the, the, the brain-machine interface field is it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time to get this to a point where it's, you know, practical and mainstream. And yeah. the private sector right now doesn't have the money to do that. No, um, it, so it's going to take government and, and military funding and other things to, to get it to that level. Um, so, so yeah, it's, I mean... It's exciting to think about the future applications, and I think sometimes we get caught up in. Um, I think it's you know, possible, yeah, to think only like, fifty years yeah. ahead rather than right now. Yeah, I mean, like on the Discovery Channel the other day, I saw something, and the opening scene was like, "Is our police going to be able to read our minds if we commit a crime?" And it was it was just so outdone, and then it tried to bring it back into the current day context with people using EEG headsets to play video games, and it's. It so I think it, we have to be careful it. to yeah. just yeah yeah it, it's fun to fantasize but I think um, so anyway so so back to your point though the yes the some of the the needs for patients certainly drive some of the innovation and work yeah. but even early on there still is um, you know the the DARPAs of the world who are willing yep. to put money in because they see the potential long-term applications, even, even early on. So, so and, both kind of happen, I think. And to the, to the shorter-term context, of course, you know, you guys are, are not DARPA, and, and you guys are not thinking, you know, 20 years ahead and soldiers telepathically. You guys are right now helping folks. You have another 10, right. 10 people who are going to be working with you at the Speak Your Mind Foundation. Um, in, terms of, in terms of those potentially, again, beginning as ameliorative technologies, um, rolling out, you had mentioned you see the next three to five as natural computer interfacing, wearable. Where, um, based on again, you're applying this, you're putting this stuff on people's heads now and, and tinkering in this world in, in many levels. Where do you see those initially maybe catching on, even outside the context that you work in in the world? From wearable, I think there's a lot of wearable stuff that, as you had said, that the threshold, you know. It's got to be. There's got to be some serious application for anybody to want to wear something until it becomes right. the thing. Then everybody will have it, like an iPhone. Uh, yeah. But uh, but where where do you see that natural computer interfacing really sort of catching on um, in the mainstream? Space? Yeah, I mean, I think gaming is probably the most obvious one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, people. Good I mean, call. good call. Gaming, gaming. Um, actually, another interesting area is is designers, um, mm. even product designers. So being able to interact oh. in a in a in an immersive kind of three-dimensional world, whether that be, I don't know if you've seen the Oculus Rift. Yes, yes. Um, that, that's one where you, you just imagine, um, you know, being able to design a product and being able to physically interact with the thing as a computer model. Yeah. Um, the other big area, and this is already happening too, is um, 
in, in, there are other medical applications. So surgeons, for example, you know, oh. ass, assistive robotics are already being used in surgery, like the Da Vinci robot. Um, and if you think about, you know, wearing Google Glass, for example, to give you a, a, a virtual reality heads-up display or, or Oculus Rift or other things that can enhance a surgeon's ability to perform, you know, to perform a procedure um, where, let's say, for example, you know, although they're in the body manipulating real physical tools, um, there are overlays of the CT or the MRI that shows where that tumor is located or actually gives them heightened yeah. Titans tactile feedback from the instruments that they're using, yeah. or so there are a wealth of, of wow. okay. opportunities in, in healthcare, um, uh, and, and certainly military as well. Right? The, there's there's always examples of heightening senses and awareness um, could save lives. Right? So um, okay. those those are those are typically the sectors that lead technology development. Anyway, I guess healthcare usually <laughs> lags actually. Um, but military and gaming applications seem to always be the ones that that drive cool technology, and then people apply them elsewhere. People do like them video games. Man. Love their video games. You know? <laughs> okay, great, cool. That 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 is interesting, and I, and I think <laughs> it will be fascinating to see how the next three to five years roll out. And and clearly, again, that'll have some cool, uh, fun applications in the world, which may uh, enter into some really interesting opportunities to augment our experience, but also those developments, I think, will be in a very cyclical relationship with the work that you're doing now um, in terms of helping folks with, with really serious conditions be able to interact with their world. So that's great stuff. Dan, I appreciate you being able to take the time. Um, if people want to learn more about your foundation, your work, get connected socially or otherwise, um, what are the best ways to find you guys now? Yeah, I mean, so so I should mention that we are a volunteer-based organization. We have hackers and developers from actually all over the world now who have wanted to contribute and we're actively kind of getting them engaged in projects. So you can come to our website at speakyourmindfoundation.org. Um, right now we actually, we're running an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. So if people really believe in what we're doing and want to, want to help us you know, achieve our mission of helping people with disabilities, um, right on our website is our crowdfunding link. And um, so if you want to go maybe make a small contribution and share that link with your friends, please do so. Again, going through speakyourmindfoundation.org, um, best way to kind of check out what we're doing. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, you know, connect with us that way. Awesome. Very good. Yeah. And, and for everybody tuned in, I chipped in a little bit on the Indiegogo myself. I definitely recommend at least seeing Appreciate their video, that. their work, and, and, what, and what they're up to. It's cool stuff. I'm rooting for you guys big time. Dan, thank you again so much for taking the time today. All right. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off.
and we'll see you next week.